So, flip to Ecclesiastes 4, if you haven't already. Ecclesiastes 4, uh, autonomy versus companionship. That's the, the uh, title today. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 16 as we continue our study in Ecclesiastes. Let's start with a word of prayer. Our Father and our gracious God, we pray today that you would remind us of our need to depend on you, on your Son, and on your Holy Spirit in order for us to advance the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us the wonders of companionship as we seek to honor you in our relationships. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 So uh, the passage here today um, the preacher, Koheleth, he's going to speak about isolationism, the problem of isolationism, autonomy, we might call it that as well, and basically just a general lack of companionship that can happen if we drift away from God's design and what he has planned for us and what he desires for us. And the paradigm works itself out very simply in the passage. So I'm just going to you know, summarize it quickly. One, there's no comfort, and that's in verse 1. There's no comfort to be found in that. He's going to speak of oppression, as we'll see. Um, Rivalry and dissension uh, and envy destroys human relationships. He'll bring that up in verse 4. There's a problem of the man who is all alone in verse 8. He's going to speak of that issue. He will tell us in verses 9 through 12 that two are better than one. This is the famous Accord of Three Strands passage. And then he, he, he will also tell us that there are kings, he's the example of a king, who isolates himself with an unteachable spirit. And so we're talking about autonomy versus companionship, and frankly, why it matters that we cultivate and experience the latter instead of the former. And that goes for all peoples and all sorts of relationships. Why does it matter that God gave us each other? That sort of thing. So look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. He says, then again, excuse me, then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Interesting. Koheleth. Due to oppression, he says, in the reality of relationships, the only happy men are dead men. (laughs) It's a fairly morbid section. Uh, The truly happy, he says, are those who have never been born. So it seems. So Solomon, Koheleth, the preacher, He looks around at the social order of autonomy and he surveys the landscape of what's taking place and he sees a major problem. He sees oppression and injustice, much like what we would see today, oppression and injustice. He says oppressors have power and basically the oppressed, all they have are tears. How do we face this reality? Do we simply try to escape it? Perhaps the dead man is better off after all, or perhaps... The person who has never existed is better off. Now, set aside for a moment the issue of self-consciousness and the ability to exist in a non-existent state. (laughs) Perhaps it's better. Perhaps you're happier in a non-existent state. Well, is there even happiness? You don't exist. You get what he's saying. A little bit of hyperbole. Injustice, it seems, characterizes 
all of life under the sun. However, God, we know from Scripture, does comfort the afflicted. Compassion for those who suffer injustice is all over the Old Testament. That's why we, we um, embrace and like the term social justice. We are, are not particularly allergic to the term, nor should we, as some proponents would argue. Um, God's law is itself gives certain protections for the poor, for the stranger, for the widow, for the orphan. God's law is always in favor of those who are at the short end of the power stick, those who don't have power and authority, those who aren't in the majority. Because oftentimes the majority is just going to do its own thing. It's, it's bent. Collectivism is always bent towards autonomy and, and, and power in, in uh, what we call the power religion. So part of the problem is that the oppressors, he says, they have power, but they don't have any ethics to do good under their authority. They don't have the ethics to, to handle the power. They become tyrants. When tyrants lust for power, the people groan in agony. Think of the uh, Egyptians who enslaved the Israelites. God heard their groaning. He heard them. They were being oppressed. And I wonder if Solomon is thinking of that. I don't know. So oppressors have power. They don't have any ethics. But the oppressed, they have ethics, but they don't have power. So there's the, there's the quandary we're in, right? Where might they turn? Well, Psalm 119, verse 50, says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. That's Psalm 119, verse 50. A great verse to keep uh, underlined in your Bible. Remember the Christmas song, O Holy Night. I almost picked that one. He says, And in his name all oppression shall cease. Verse 4. I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after win. When you look around at the world, there is such a thing as economic competition. That's a good thing basic to economic theory. Competition is important because it, it always refines products. It always produces better products. It lowers costs when there is competition in the market. Um, but he says, look, th there's rivalry everywhere. There's envy. There's this constant quarreling. And so follow the train of thought. Oppression, he says, in the first three verses, destroys a social order. There, there's just injustice everywhere. Much like envy and rivalry destroys a relationship. See, if we approach the dominion mandate from this presupposition of envy, the bad fruit of jealousy and one-upmanship, uh, covetousness, and those types of things will be the result. Perhaps it's better to just withdraw altogether. All these problems he sees, maybe we should just withdraw. Well, look at verse 5 and 6. The fool, I love this, these two verses, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Talk about morbidity. One handful of rest is better than two fistful of labor and striving after wind. Very proverbial statement here. The fool who doesn't work but folds his hand is the one who uses everything up until he has nothing left but his own flesh to consume. Kind of a vivid cannibalistic <laughs> proverb. Instead of pursuing envy, instead of pursuing power in order to oppress others, guess what this man does? Nothing. He pursues nothing. He disengages altogether. He is a vacuum that has turned on itself. This too, Solomon says, is entirely destructive. Contentment is much more preferable than envy and laziness. 
Fools fold their hands and rest and don't do anything. That's a picture of complacency. It's a picture of self-destruction. It's not just a waste of capital, by the way. It's not just a, a burning up of your inventory and you know, liquid, you know, liquidizing all of your assets. It's not just that. It's not just a waste of capital. Idleness eats away not only at possessions, but self-control. It eats away at your perception of reality because suddenly everybody's out to get you. <laughs> uh, it eats away at your dignity, your integrity. One of the biggest things it does is eats away at the very biblical concept of empathy towards others, empathy and care towards other people. Um, folding your hands, again, not just capital, but it'll eat away at your self-respect. You will suddenly stop believing that you are made in the image of God, that you have value and dignity. You'll consume yourself. See, toiling can be time-consuming, but idleness is self-consuming. Wisdom, then, requires man to avoid the streams. Extremes. We, we talk about that a lot. Avoid the extremes. It's usually a good principle. Too much work or an utter concern for only work destroys us. It, he says it's better to have a handful of earnings with rest and enjoyment and joy in your life and happiness. It's better to have at least one handful of that than a ton of work. Your hands are full and you have a ton of vexation. You have a ton of problems. See, the former gives you tranquility in your heart and peace in your mind. The latter is inevitable frustration and failure. See, human, human toil, when we think about our labor, we're, we are made and created to labor. Work is a gift. But human toil and work, with these presuppositions, he says is vanity. And the reason it's vanity is for two basic reasons. One, achieving much in life seems to be motivated by en envy, he says. Uh, and we know apart from Christ, that's what we do. Paul says, you know, I didn't know, thou, I didn't know what it was to covet until I was told thou shalt not covet. So you're awakened to light. That's uh, from Romans. But the second thing is the man who doesn't work, he destroys himself. So we have these problems in front of us. So instead of, instead of those things, we should be restful. We should be uh, quiet. We should be content. We should, sort of the psalm, what is it, chapter 46, um, uh, cease striving, uh, be at peace with God. Uh, those concepts of rest are, are, are important. So be filled with peace and be filled with composure in your life. Meekness. Don't be self-consuming, be self-giving, he says. You can't lend someone a hand when your hands are full. The restful person is balanced. Um, not full, but he's certainly not empty either. Uh, he, he's balanced. He, he has a decent handful of labor and the pursuit of the Dominion Covenant um, so he can make it through life. But he's content and he's enjoying God. He's enjoying others. He's enjoying the fruit of his labors. Those are really wonderful things to pursue. That's wisdom. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man... Here's an experiment, thought experiment here. There's a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. So if striving with envy is vanity, and being lazy is vanity, what do we live for? 
<laughs> what do we live for? Well, here's the, here's the rich man. He doesn't have any family. He doesn't have any friends. Perhaps going it alone is better. Maybe that's the option. If, auto- if autonomy, maybe that's better suited for wealth management, <laughs> you know, the, the, your pursuit of, the, of labor. Maybe you should just do it yourself. Well, no, he says it isn't. This too is vanity. This too is a grievous task. His eyes aren't satisfied. Here's the principle. Men, and I'm including women, so you don't get to get out of that either, become lonely misers when their only aim in life is the accumulation of more wealth. That is not the same as saying, don't accumulate wealth. We're not pietists. But if your only aim is that, he says, we have a problem. You become a miser. Working solo not only ignores the principle of division of labor. We need each other. We're supposed to do this together. It also means that the miser, he can't share his profits with anybody else. He can't share the fruit of labor. It's fruit. Fruit is meant to be eaten. You can't. Um, enjoy. There's no pleasure in it if you're by yourself. The preacher puts himself in the shoes of this man. He says, what's the profit? I I have no family to enjoy this wealth with. I don't even have time to enjoy it. I'm so busy. Why bother? This is vanity. People like this, here's how you know if you're like this. People like this never evaluate their life. They never stop and pause and think, what am I doing right now? And what do I want to be doing in five years? There's no strategic planning. Uh, They never really double-check their priorities to see whether or not the things are going according to plan or should be going according to God's plan, as it were. Possessions are thus vanity in this worldview because they won't satisfy Him. See, here's the thing. I said this earlier. Work is a gift, and it is. But hard work is also a pleasure. It's meant to be satisfying. You're meant to finish mowing the lawn and take a deep breath And not just be a a curmudgeon who says, boy, I had to do this again. You're supposed to say, wow, this was great. Uh, Some of you, maybe maybe Aaron too, because he spends, you know, a whole day mowing. But you get done and it's tiring, but don't you feel good about it? There's sort of the accomplishment. That's the fruit of your labor. You're taking it in. You you should. But if we do it so that we can um, consume ourselves without spurring on the kingdom, we need to pause and ask, for who am I toiling? It's a great question. For who am I toiling? Is it for God's kingdom? Or is it for my own? Look at verses 9 and 12, 9 through 12. Two are better than one, he says, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Rather than envious, striving, laziness, or autonomous wealth acquisition, uh, Koheleth, he gives us some practical advice. Don't do that. Here's how you should do it. Two are better than one because a man is, is obviously far more productive when he works together voluntarily. You're far more productive. You can accomplish far more. Um, not only is he more productive, he's actually generally more safe in his life. Uh, if you're alone and you fall into a pit, which is really what he's describing, um, there's no one there to help you. Uh, think of Joseph who was thrown in the pit and then sold into slavery, right? There's no one to help you. 
On a cold night, which is often the case for travelers, if you had another traveler, you could quite literally huddle up together and keep warm through the night. Um, if you're traveling and you're being robbed by a bandit of sorts, two can overtake the one. In other words, here's his point. You need companionship during hardship uh, for times of emergencies like an accident um, or perhaps a situation of inadequacy or lack in your life, like the cold night, and especially adversity, like having to deal with an assailant. So moving from one to two is absolutely incredibly helpful, he says, for various economic reasons, tactical reasons, strategic reasons. There's a, there's a reason for it. Moving from two to three is very much an improvement as well, as illustrated by the three-stranded cord, three cord. And I'm going to say more about this later, but the three strands isn't simply meant to be a mathematical equation, though it is that too. Three strands rather than two makes the rope strong enough to do something with it. All right. Um, we don't have to speculate like many in church history. Oh, this is the Trinity. It's clearly the Trinity. Uh, and, and maybe it is. But I think there's something more behind it. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Look at the last set of verses. Verse 13. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. <laughs> it's a great another story here. For he has come out of prison to become king. Talk about rag to riches. Even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun uh, to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them. And even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after wind. We have a last experiment here. Popularity is transient and insecure. It's transient and it's insecure, for it relies solely on the fickleness of people. Because it's here today, gone tomorrow. Popularity can vanish, vanish just as quickly as, as the vapor of breath. Thus, he says, it's better to be a poor young kid who is willing to learn than an old stubborn king who lacks a teachable spirit. Listen, old age and a false sense of accomplishment in the public eye has, has deadened this guy's desire to learn. Right? No, no, in his mind, he's the greatest legend of all. Legend in his own mind. Uh, he has it all. What could anyone possibly teach him, right? Who, who can be my counselors? I am rich. I have it all. I'm the king. I have a kingdom. None would dare challenge me, right? None dare try and cast their pearly wisdom before this swine king. Now, age and certainly experience can teach us things, but what you need to know is not always a guarantee. Age does not unilaterally mean wisdom. Not inherently. The poor man who became king caused his own demise by becoming an unteachable man. Another came along, replaced him as king, and he didn't learn from his experience of, of age. He didn't learn from his experience and, his, and or his age. Uh, receiving the popular vote, as it were, it's fleeting, it's unpredictable. You can have a million Twitter followers and be the most loneliest person on the planet. If a man won't receive instruction from others, this is how you know you have a person who is wise. If a man will not receive instruction 
from others. The only kingdom he'll la have left is the one between his ears. That's it. So, let's unpack this some more. So, Koholeth, he's moving from the realm of the physical, he's moving into the metaphysical, and now he's kind of back and forth with it. He explores human relationships, and he sets them within the context of life under the sun. What is the, the vanity of our relationships, the day in, day out? Some are envious, some are servants. How do we sort the mess out? How should we view it? Remember, <clears throat> I want to say this again. Vanity does not necessarily mean utter meaninglessness like that which the nihilist would propose. Vanity is this profound sense of monotony and repetitious order that appears to be meaningless, especially when it's done apart from God. So the, the vanity here, he says, you have autonomy, kind of going it your own way, your self-law, versus God's law, which promotes uh, companionship. These are, these are the issues. What is man's relationship to, to other men? Now, we need to keep in mind in this discussion that in large part, this is a giant thought experiment. It's not, however, the type of thought experiment that is pulled completely out of thin air. Uh, Solomon would have walked through this. He would have seen it all. He, he is, was a wise man. He had it all. He learned a lot in his age. And this, of course, is his um, memoir, if you will. The observations that, that Kohath makes, they are real-time observations. Real-time observations that we can look around in, in our own lives and see. We can see it. He, le he, le he looks deeply at the things that we would otherwise ignore or honestly rarely consider. I think most Christians... Uh, church-going Christians function, uh, it would probably be a high percentage, function in their Christianity without any semblance of strategic planning. None. I go to work, clock in, clock out, go home, do it again. That, that's, the, that's the vanity, and it is vanity. But are you going to do something about it? Are you going to work within the paradigm of the vanity? That's the question. So the... The question he raises are, are difficult questions that require wise answers. But they do have answers, despite the daunting nature of the issues. So there are various social concerns for the preacher. We met one of them last week. There is, uh, at the end of chapter 3, there's injustice in the place of righteousness. The judiciary is corrupt. Uh, due process is long gone. One only needs to look at Roe v. Wade to see how <laughs> corrupt it has been and continues to be, despite Republican-appointed Supreme Court justices. Yet, God does intervene. He, he is the judge of the universe, and he will sort it out at the final judgment. And we also saw last week there was this mortality test. Um, men and animals all die. What's the difference? Men and animals all die. If there's no difference between us and the, the cows and horses that you passed on your way here today, then all meaning goes away because death is sovereign. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. But for Christians, there is life after death because Jesus Christ conquered the grave. Problem solved. There are more problems and perturbations. Oppression seems to be the de facto position for all of humankind. It's beyond me, while we can have a presidential candidate who is as socialist as they come, receive so much hoopla from uh, college-age students right now. There's a reason for that, though. There's a reason why they're bent on socialism, despite the fact that you had Mao and Stalin and others who left millions of people in their wake, far more than any religious war. 
makes you wonder. It seems like oppression is the, the de facto position. Democrats and Republicans both using power plays to try and, and, and fight the other. It's just this monotonous back and forth, eight years of a Democrat, eight years of Republican, and no real social, uh, uh, economic, and or um, ethical advancement. Well, we know because the answer is the gospel, not, not the political circus. So what about in this nature? Who can find comfort in this nonsense? Who could possibly find comfort? Well, only those in Christ. What about human striving? Envy runs rampant, uh, and when men are tired of striving, they kick back, they relax, and they not only watch the world burn, their own flesh burns. The envious and lazy, they, they miss the mark entirely. For you can enjoy your work without going to the extremes. You can do another water heater this week. <laughs> Maybe. You, you can change out a toilet. You can crunch some numbers, write some software coding. You can do it. But you can do it with joy, and that's altogether different. Another concern has to do with a man whose wealth cre creates a relational vacuum. Instead of fulfillment and companionship and profit sharing and enjoyment, he tells himself that his money, that his possessions are really good friends and they encourage him all the time. The preposterous thing about idols, by the way, is that they never really ever tell you the truth. They only whisper flatteries and sweet niceties into the ears of its owner. This man is self-deceived and self-deception is where idols thrive. The last concern here has to do with popularity and renown. If being alone doesn't work, what about being liked about everybody? What, what is it about that? If, if being alone is a problem, what about popularity? What about having all the, the social uh, influence that you could garner? Well, this too is vanity, he says, because a man's acceptance and approval can only come from Christ. We know that. Not other men, and certainly not all of the other men. So we have a crisis of existence. Perhaps a crisis of relational vanity is more apt. See, everything the preacher looks at, he finds vanity. He finds despair. He finds sin and autonomy running rampant. He finds dejection as well. Even within the most fundamental aspects of human existence, a man's relationship with himself and others, he finds vanity. See, the issue he explores in this particular passage is the problem of human autonomy and our practical need for companionship. At the core of human autonomy is what we can call rugged individualism, which is actually just another way of describing a man or a woman who's determined to be an isolationist. Um, Koheleth sees nothing but problems with this particular worldview. The, the rugged, go-it-aloner, I don't need anybody, I'm doing this myself, he goes one of several ways. He will be envious. He will be lazy. He will become unteachable. Or he will become a miser, solely existing to acquire wealth. See, this autonomous pursuit, it's antithetical to basic Christian teaching. And let me explain why that is. Men, women, children, all of you here today, all men and women and children, by the way, are inescapably covenantal creatures inescapably. The entirety of our existence is covenantal. Everything about it. Everything. We are made in the image of God. So good luck trying to dislodge yourself from that reality. And people try. 
<laughs> they try. Everything about us is covenantal. Our relationship with God is covenantal. Um, he's our creator. Even unbelievers are in covenant with God. They are in Adam. They are in sin and dead in their sins, and they need to come out of that. But they're in covenant with God. Our relationship to the world is covenantal. Our, our, our relationship with each other is covenantal as well, too. Even the unbeliever, as I said, is in covenantal relationship. So it's inescapable. You can't get away from it. As Christians, we are inextricably bound together by covenant relationships. You look around the room, this is who we have. We better take note so we understand the, the seriousness and the severity of what he's teaching here. Husbands and wives, sons and daughters, the family itself is covenantal. Our participation in free market economics is one of voluntary covenantal transaction and exchange. You are not just selling a product, you are trying to earn money. And not only are you trying to earn money, you are trying in that process to have ethical guidelines in place so that you are successful. It's covenantal. Perhaps most essential to all of it is our covenantal relationship with Christ. His bloody atonement not only forgave us of our sin, it brought, forth, it brought us forth into this new covenant reality whereby we are, friends, the family of God. Bumps and bruises all along. We're the family of God. We are saved from sin to a family, which means that companionship is absolutely a built-in feature of God's sovereign design. Um, uh, it was read earlier from Luke. Um, Michael read it, Luke 8, 19 to 21. Who are, who are my mothers and brothers? How offensive, first. He says, well, anybody who does the will of God. It's covenantal. See, due to our inescapable position as covenantally bound people, it makes sense as to why the preacher would actually emphasize companionship here. The antithesis is, couldn't be more stark. We have two options, friends, and only two options. Life or death, right? Joy-filled vanity or nihilistic vanity. Jesus or sin. That's it. That's the antithesis of history. For those who choose autonomy, the fruit will be consistent with that autonomous tree. For those who prefer the glories of Jesus Christ, that fruit will be consistent with the covenantal tree. Now, I will say this, and I think you could all say amen. Relationships are hard. They're very hard. Uh, relationships are messy. Okay? Um, when you wake up next to the same person day in and day out, it can be messy. <laughs> uh, relationships are difficult. They're just plain difficult. Companionship, though it is definitely a lot of work, its benefits far outweigh its challenges. See, when emergencies arise, having someone there to help you lend a hand is priceless. Can't put a price on that. When uncertainty or um, lack visits your life, having someone to keep you warm is everything, especially if you're uh, way up into the North Pole. Or perhaps you're in a difficult situation and you need to defend yourself against a perp. Having your friend Smith & Wesson <laughs> is great for leveling the playing field, um, but frankly, your 9mm isn't a great conversationalist, so it's best to have two people go against the one. Now, I, I'm convinced that this passage is incredibly practical for Christians, and we need to know this. Companionship is meant to be a gift to be stewarded well, which means that we need to constantly... Uh, 
keep ourselves away, refrain from envy, refrain from rivalry. And we need to keep in mind that our wealth and our pursuit of it is meant to serve the kingdom of God and not our own kingdoms. Those things destroy social order. Look at the world. We have to keep companionship at the core of what it means to be Christian. When Christian fellowship such as ours takes great care in developing true companionship and growing in things like trust with one another, which takes time. Uh, the, the, um, the apt description of trust is future expectation based on past performance. So we have to constantly be vigilant in trying to earn trust um, and not sort of the, you know, oh, please trust me, but like genuinely laboring with maturity and wisdom and, and gaining trust with one another, having integrity constantly. When we do that, we will find ourselves, I believe and I'm convinced, in a far greater position to make a far greater impact. In order to function the way God tells us to function, we have to emphasize this, companionship. See, when Koholeth says that two are better than one, I have to think, and I could be dead wrong, and I don't know of any commentary who has suggested this. I, I don't spend time much in them. I think he's referring to Adam and Eve in the garden and the subsequent task of servant-based dominion. And I think I can prove my case. In Genesis, we know it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, so God created Eve from his rib. And while we're not necessarily talking about the institution of marriage in its entirety, we are speaking of companionship in large part. Um, when that happened, when Adam and Eve were there, the first wedding ceremony was initiated. It was very good. It was very good. It went from a not good thing to a very good thing. And the reason it was very good is because of the principle of division of labor. Um, when, when trying to accomplish a task, Jesus himself told us, count the cost. If you don't count the cost, you are a fool. Adam needed to help me. He needed to help me. And together they accomplished the Dominion Covenant. And so obviously this is an economic tactic on God's part. So we need, we need to always be doing a cost-benefit analysis. We're going to get a little economic here. You have to do a cost-benefit analysis. The Dominion Covenant is in view, I believe, because Koheleth is quite familiar with the task of labor, which is why he speaks of wealth and relationships. So... Here, let's, let's take this and, and apply it here to all of us. Our task, we affirm, is to Christianize the nations, to make disciples. We affirm that. Christianize the land. Take the land. And the way we go about that obviously requires wisdom. We're not soldiers running around, firing our guns in the air, and getting all amped about the war, just haphazardly <laughs> firing our guns in the air. Woohoo, the boogaloos here, right? No. We want to be wise and tactical and strategic. Not everyone can do everything, and not everyone should do everything, but everyone should do something. The universal church is one body, many members. So, one of the principles we find in, in war is economy of force, one of my favorites. An economy of force means that we need to apply the right amount of pressure to the right time. You have to have the troops at the right place at the right time. So this requires wisdom. It requires you know, diligence. It's a cost-benefit analysis. How will we make disciples? What will our strategy be? What sort of tactics will we need to deploy? Um, how much money do we need? And do we need to spend the money on a $5 million building that goes unused most of the week? 
Do we need, do we need, you know, these are the questions. Um, not only how much money do we need, can we do it cheaper? Can we do it any cheaper? There are, these are important questions that we shouldn't just consider for the big picture. Honestly, all of you and your families need to consider those things day to day as well. If, if what am I, whatever it is that I'm about to do, can I do it cheaper? Can I do it better? Can I do it more efficiently? Can I farm out some of those responsibilities? Those are the questions we should ask. So every individual needs to do that. Every family, every church should be thinking in these terms. And frankly, the challenge, maybe you'll amen, amen this, it seems, stems from a lack of focus, a lack of time management, and so on. There are many blessings in life. Remember the car with the keys we talked about a couple weeks ago? Those blessings, if they're not stewarded, become a noose of vanity with which we sulk and we lament. That's the fruit of autonomy. The car has seats, and those seats are meant to be filled with companions. See, in Christ, we have this cord of three strands. In Christ, we are not put asunder, nor are we torn apart. But Christ, the blood of Christ, is stronger than that. In Christ, we have been weaved together in this magnificent tapestry called the church, called the kingdom. Um, the gospel of the kingdom, it brings us together. But the cool thing about it is that it doesn't just bring us together. It makes us friends. It makes us friends. Friends of God and friends of each other. And based on that friendship with God, we can develop friendship with each other. Remember, it's not just a mathematical equation, this cord of three strands. The cord of three strands, I believe, is a picture of the dominion mandate. There is strength in numbers, absolutely. But those numbers mean nothing if the rope isn't used to impact the world. To give you the picture of the cord of three strands, either... (laughs) You know, companionship is designed for the kingdom, absolutely. Autonomy is designed for self-destruction, absolutely. But that cord, if it does not get used and utilized for the kingdom, it becomes a noose. And that's where the church is at, by and large, today. Let me end with these last couple of thoughts. God has indeed called us to labor. He's called us to toil. He's called us to enjoy the vanity. He does. He's called us to work and keep the garden world. He's done all that. And frankly, he's called us to Sabbath often. We all need to be practicers of Sabbath. We need rest. Work hard, rest well. But this is done with others. The curse of God against man for our rebellion prevents uh, meaningful friendship. Sin does damage. It does damage in a marriage. It does damage with your parents. It does damage with your children. It does damage with all sorts of things. So our our envy, we know, can drive us mad. We can be envious and it can consume us. Our constant rivalry will um, frustrate us and isolate us. When when we long for, for wealth at the expense of others, guess what we do? We dig our own graves. When we lack a teachable spirit like the king here, uh, we, we pridefully fen- fence ourselves off from other people. So all of these autonomous lusts must be crucified with Christ and they must be raised up to companionship with Christ as he walked out of the tomb. And I have to say this, how wonderful is it that when Christ came out of the tomb, what did he do? He went straight to his friends. Let's pray. Father, you have been nothing but good to us. You have been a friend when we have not been. You have given us 
as Moses was a friend of God, you have given us that friendship, that companionship. And my prayer today is that by your Holy Spirit, we would cultivate that, that we would, in fact, be companions, but not just for the sake of companionship, but for the sake of the task that you have called us to, this grand vision of discipling the nations. We want this cord of three strands to be utilized practically uh, for economic advancement, for issues of social justice. We want desperately to, to have companionship for those ends. And so we uh, submit our time to you today. We ask and pray for help. You know that we need it, and we acknowledge that we need it. So would you give it to us? Would you give us wisdom? Give us grace. Help us crucify our, our passions that are not godly. May your spirit prevail among us in Christ's name. Amen.